invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Uh, That's page 874 in these uh, Bibles in the pews, Luke chapter 15. I'm going to talk uh, today as we look at this about how God is a God who seeks. He seeks the lost. He is seeking the lost. And the three parables in Luke 15 all describe how God seeks. Now these are three familiar parables, and I want to read the entire chapter, so I'm going to speed up the pace just a little bit. Hear God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant inspired word. For the past almost three weeks, much of the world has been focused on searching for this Malaysian Airlines flight MH370. The sheer amount of manpower and sea power uh, with 20-plus nations working relatively well together is, we are told, unprecedented. Why such effort? Why search for things like this? Well, because they're valuable. 239 passengers and crew matter. If it was an unmanned drone, they probably would have noted it missing and never looked for it. There would never be that much effort. We look for things that matter. In Luke chapter 15, we have here three stories, three parables that tell us about lost things. And they tell us primarily about the searches for those lost things. And they are searched for because they matter. Let me tell you the context. The context in this is vital. Uh, And that is in response to something that is thought about Jesus in in verse 2. But let me tell you about verse 14, that that often we leave, uh, chapter 14, what we leave out. In the previous chapter, Jesus has been explaining the cost involved in following him to be his disciple. And in chapter 14, he has made such observations as that unless someone hates his father and mother, he cannot be his disciple. Unless you are prepared to take up your cross and follow me, you are not my disciple. Unless you are prepared to lose all your, give up all your possessions, you must do so to be my disciple. So he has just raised the bar very, very high. Now, you see why in chapter 15, it's ironic as to who is, who is responding to that call. It's the very irreligious people. It's the tax collectors. It's the, the sinners, the public people that had nothing to do with the things of God. They are the ones responding to what Jesus has been saying. Now, normally, religious people would not associate with sinners, with those outside. We're all sinners, we know that, but these were publicly known sinners that in no way tried to act like they were people that that lived for God in any way. And and so the religious people, the leaders, it tells us, Uh, In verse 2 of chapter 15, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, and it's not as though they said this to Jesus, they're saying this among themselves, this man receives sinners and eats with them. These lowlifes. Now, religious people at that time normally didn't associate with them. Uh, They might teach them if the person came to them and kind of cleaned their act up enough and expressed interest, then the the Pharisees and the scribes would offer to to teach them. Uh, But it implied, to spend time with them, implied that you were condoning their lifestyles. And so that's what the religious establishment felt toward them. And uh, of all things, to eat with them implied welcome. It implied acceptance. It still does today to a certain extent. If you invite someone into your home, it's, a, it's such a great expression of hospitality because by your very gesture, you're saying, I welcome you. You're welcome here. Come, eat with us, eat at our table. 
And so the Pharisees were willing, if someone came into the synagogue and showed great initiative and said, I'd like to learn about this, then they might, might respond to them and teach them, but they certainly were not willing to seek them out. And so that attitude made outreach impossible. J.C. Ryle, probably my favorite commentator and preacher on, on the parables, said the thing which they found fault with in Jesus was the very thing he came on earth to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. And that bothered them. They did not like that at all. So Jesus was, we see from his ministry, he was willing to seek out sinners. He was willing to rub shoulders with them. He was willing to interact with them. He was willing to identify with them that they might be saved. That was his purpose. He did have an agenda to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, now he tells these three parables in response to that attitude to teach them, to teach us about how we should view people. How should we view others, especially those who don't know Christ, who, don't, who are far from God? And Jesus is saying, this is the Father's outlook, and therefore it should be the disciples' outlook as well. Now, I'm just going to be very brief on these. By my notes, I preached on the first two parables back in the fall. I don't remember. <laughs> I, if I don't remember, I know you don't remember. But assuming someone maybe took some notes down, I'm just going to go over these very quickly. And by my notes, I last studied the parable of the prodigal son in 2006. I certainly don't remember that. I don't remember what happened last week. I don't know... So, but I'm going to go briefly to cover all three. I've never tried to cover three in one message. We'll see how well I do. <laughs> all right, first, the parable of the lost sheep. Very simple to understand. He tells them, imagine this shepherd, and he's got 99 sheep, and he's obviously counting the sheep. Probably all throughout the day he's counting the sheep, and this last count renders that there's one missing. He's got 99, so he leaves the 99. We assume he kind of we assume he pins them up and he goes and he searches and the point is he searches diligently until he finds it he is intent to find that one lost sheep and he finds it and when he comes back the search obviously had lasted long enough to where there's a celebration and he calls together others to celebrate with him and then jesus draws out the lesson in verse 7 i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance brief parable easy to understand now he moves on to the second one the parable of the lost coin here's this woman she has these 10 coins commentators are not sure whether they had monetary value to be so uh uh meaningful to her or whether it was just sentimental were they were they uh, coins that she really needed that one lost coin like i've lost a great value or was it just sentimental like it was coins from a headdress that she had worn for her wedding in either case it doesn't matter what her motive is she wants to find it so she sweeps and digs and probably turns over whatever furniture was there ultimately she finds it and hers is a cause for celebration and so she calls her friends and neighbors together, it tells us in verse 9. It says, Rejoice with me, I found that which was lost. And then the same lesson he tells, verse 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so these two parables teach us two very important things. First, that God is concerned, that he is lovingly concerned to reach out to those who have rejected him and gone their sinful way. 
You read all through Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and what do we see? God longing to draw people to himself. God uh, desiring to see people come to know him. In Ezekiel, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 33, it says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So he, he, even in the Old Testament, he's longing for people to come to him. The second lesson from these two is that God welcomes. He welcomes with open arms. Even the worst of sinners who honestly turn and seek his forgiveness. That's why in 2 Peter, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we should respond to these two important truths, that God is lovingly concerned to reach out to those who do not know him, and that he welcomes with open arms those who turn to him in faith and repentance. So we should know as his followers, as Christ's followers, that every believer should show genuine love for the most unlovely people. You know, Romans 13 says that you and I owe something to everyone. Do you know that? You're obligated. I'm obligated as a Christ follower. Here's what we owe. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. <laughs> I'm obligated to love other people if I'm a follower of Christ. Secondly, every believer should welcome others as brother, those who come to faith in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the parable of the, the lost son. Probably the most familiar story in the Bible. You know, I've, some of you know that I'm, I'm, I just taught my 33rd lesson this past week to the international students at First Presbyterian Day School. So here are eight from China, one from Vietnam, none from any kind of, no sort of Christian background, all atheists or agnostics by their own admission. And so I've been teaching them Bible stories, and now we're into the New Testament. We did the Old Testament for Christmas, now we're into the New Testament. I'm leading up to Easter and Palm Sunday and so uh, it was about a week, a week and a half ago, we, I taught them two lessons on parables. I told them what parables were, and we, I learned some Chinese parables, and they learned some Bible parables, and we compared notes, and we came to the parable of the prodigal son. And even then, for people with no Bible background, it became very gripping, the whole story. So even people that do not know the Bible often know this story. Even an unchristian writer, a very non-Christian literary writer has said this is the greatest short story that's ever been written most people know this if you give a child a clean sleet of a, slate, uh, a clean piece of paper and you say draw out this story it's an excellent way to teach by the way if you don't do that and you read the parable of the prodigal son they'll typically draw it in four scenes sometimes five and so it's easy to understand here's the first scene the son restless to leave home and in this parable, unlike the previous two, the previous two are told from the perspective of the seeker, the shepherd, the woman, and what they're doing. This parable is told from the perspective of the son. It's told from the perspective of, of how a person comes to faith, comes to love the father. And so here's the restlessness to leave home. Here's this man. He's at home, but he's hating it. His heart's elsewhere. He wants to be away from here. Now, this is the picture of the natural man in alienation from God. He is living what Isaiah said. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
And he is ready to leave, so he goes to his father and says, Give me what will come to me from your inheritance. This was a shocking demand. It was an insult. He's saying, normally you ask for your inheritance, you get it when the person dies. Here, essentially saying, as far as I'm concerned, I wish you were dead. Give me what will come to me when you die. The father gives him what would be his. There's no indication he's a bad father. There's no indication he mistreated his son or drove him away. The issue is the son's rebellion. After the first service, I had at least two people walk up to me. I wasn't, said, I was that prodigal. I said, weren't we all? And we come to verse 12, the father divides his wealth between them. Now we come to scene two. Scene two is the realization of the emptiness. He's in the far country. What about an economy of words? Verse 13, just in a few words, he said, He went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in loose living. Has, has anything more been said in such fewer words? He abandons all restraint. So he takes this, must have been a, a pretty large amount of money, and we're not told whether it was weeks, months, or years, but it must have been a, a pretty long period of time, and it's, it's all gone. We're not told exactly where it went. We're given a pretty good picture when the older brother said he spent it all on prostitutes. And yet he runs out of money. You know what Psalm 34 says? Evil will slay the wicked. You ever read that verse? Evil will slay the wicked? His evil ways caught up with him. They did him in. So the Bible says there is a high cost to low living. Somebody came up after the first service. That's a different crowd at first service. I mean, the insights they have are amazing. And once somebody walked up to me and he said, there's an addition to that. There's a high cost of low living. And that was what Dolly, Dolly Parton said. It cost a whole lot to look this cheap. <laughs> that is not going in my notes, okay? Now, so not only has he spent everything, the country's hit by famine. So there's a natural disaster now in this guy's life. So he's got empty pockets, he's got an empty stomach, and he looks for work, and the only job he can get, apparently, in verse 15, is to become a pig herder, <laughs> so to speak. He's tending these pigs. Now, you know, you've read this, many of you have studied, you've read the prodigal God, far more insights into this than I'm giving you now, but... Uh, for a Jew to be working for a Gentile, feeding pigs that they considered to be unclean, I mean, it really couldn't get a whole lot lower than this, this guy has sunk about as far as you can go. You got, when you read it, you just have to see. Because people today, we think that being apart from God is where happiness begins. If I can just separate myself from, from him or any notion of him, then I'll have freedom, I can do what I want to do, and sooner or later most people realize everybody becomes a slave to something. And this guy's enslaved, and he's become enslaved to his own heart and his own attitudes. C.S. Lewis said, Satan has never been able to manufacture the first pleasure. All he can do is take what God has already created and get people to misuse it and hurt themselves with it. And so we see this young man's search for independence. Here's what it's brought him. Poverty, famine, loneliness, desperation, resentment, and worry. That's, where, that's what he got on his trek away from his father. Now we come to scene three, the return to the father. And it begins in his stomach in verse 16. He's hungry and he's wanting to eat what he's feeding the pigs. He's at the end of his rope which, by the way, 
is a fine time to turn to God. Don't ever let somebody say, well, I've got to have my whole life together before I exercise faith. Ridiculous. He welcomes those who are at the end of their rope, as this guy was. Verse 17, it says, he came to himself. Other translations say he came to his senses. Isn't this funny? I'm talking to Christians right now. If you're not a believer today, just bear with me for a moment. If we're Christians, how does the world look at us? What have we lost? Our minds? He lost, he's out of his senses. What's the Bible say? That true insanity is to be apart from God. To come to God is when sanity begins. You come to your senses when you come to faith in Christ. That's what happened to him. And so the, the world views Christians as having lost our minds, but the Bible says just the opposite. So he prepares his speech in verses 18 and 19. He's obviously expecting a cold reception. Best he knows, his dad's not going to be happy to see him. And then verse 20 says he rose and he came to his father. He took action. Repentance is always action. It's always action. It means more than recognizing you're wrong, recognizing you may be miserable, even regretting it. It means forsaking sin, turning to God, walking the other way. That's what he does. He turns and he's headed back home. He's walking there. Now we come to the high point of the story in verse 20 and following. The father sees him, and he sees him from a long way off. And what does that tell us? It tells us he's looking for him. He's hoping, but he has no assurance that the son will come back. And then I have to tell you what I said to these students the other day. What does it say the father did? Speak to me. When he sees him, he runs. And I asked them, I, t- I made the comment, have any of you ever seen your father run? And they burst into laughter like I told the funniest joke they'd ever heard. And I went one by one. Cherry, have you seen your father run? No. Tia, you ever seen your father run? And I said, I never saw my father run. One girl was laughing so hard for like three minutes, and finally I said, why are you still laughing? She said, just the very thought of it. I said, why did you never see your father run? They said, because it's not proper. And I said, that's right. Not only in that culture it's not proper, in this culture it wasn't proper. For the father to run to his son, it would have been proper for him to stand there and wait. That would be what you'd expect. Why did he run? Because he loved him. He wanted to see him. Uh, I could get very emotional right here. I'm I'm, I'm just going to keep pushing through the the parable. There are modern versions of this story. You you probably know this. Uh, This story shows up in many, many other religions and just in folklore. But here's a modern version. One is that the son comes to the door, and it's a snowy night, and the father's inside the house, and the son knocks on the door. And the, the father comes to the door, and the son says, Father, Father, I've returned. I'm your son. And the father stares out past him into the dark and says, I have no son. And he shuts the door. And the, the story ends with the young man turning and walking into the dark, into the snow. There's a Buddhist version, which was affirmed again to me the other day. And that is that, that the son comes to the father, and the father then says, I will accept you back, but you must start at the bottom, and you must work your way back up to re-earn my respect. When I told that, I had some students go, that's the one they had heard. I said, that's not what's here. What's this say? Open arms. You are back. You are my son. 
bring the ring, bring the best robe, bring the sandals. I said, why? The, or the shoes, it says in the English version, the English Standard Version. Bring the shoes for his feet. And someone said, why shoes? I said, have you ever seen people that are poor, really poor? They said, yeah. I said, what do they not have? have? They don't have shoes. I said, right, this is a sign of sonship. He gives him all these things. Calls for the best meat to be slaughtered and prepared for this feast. And so what this has is the open reception of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so this is the reception. Have you experienced, before I go any further in the last couple of minutes, have you experienced this reception? This is the reception waiting for you if you've not yet put your faith in Christ. Believe today. Turn to him today. Uh, Trust him. Trust that when Jesus died on, on the cross that he was a substitute for your sin. And that you cannot make yourself right with God. You can't earn enough credits through good works. There's no way that all of us have a problem of sin and of death. And only Christ can solve that. That's the reception you will get. I heard a preacher years ago say there is a banner over heaven that says, Welcome home, sinner. Welcome home. The brother's not too happy to see him. This is the fifth scene, fourth or fifth, depending on how kids draw it. And if you've read Prodigal God, you know he spends a lot of time on this. But the brother's furious. He's furious at the reception, this younger or other brother that's just been a blight on the family has received. And so what we see here is that underneath this compliance where he says, I've always been obedient, I've always been respectful. And and we are assuming that he's accurate in that. But underneath this compliance is obviously a heart of rebellion. And now in the presence of his transformed brother, his true condition comes out, and it's all about himself. He trusts what he's done. He's not interested in the Father's love or grace. And so Jesus ends like that, and we may think it's a a strong or strange ending. Why? It's the challenge to the Pharisees. Now he's directing his comments. The older brother is to them, those that have looked down on those with whom Jesus is spending time, those that have condemned him for eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And he's saying to them, do you realize how far you are from the attitude of the Father? That's what he's saying. What do we learn about God from these parables? Well, there's a lot here, but just two, two big areas. One, God is a seeking God. God desires people to know him. He desires relationship with us. We may think that sounds odd. Why would he want a relationship with us? Because he's a personal God. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit itself is relational. There's a relationship there with how they relate and have related from eternity past. And when we are made in his image, that means we are hardwired to be relational because we're made in the image of God. We weren't made to live solo lives with no interaction with other people. You may or may not notice it based on your age here, but this past Friday, Jeremiah Denton died at the age of 89. Did you all know that name? Some of all right, I knew it, knew it well. But if you didn't, if, if you're too young to know, uh, Jeremiah Denton was, uh, became well-known because of being a POW in Vietnam. And he had been a pilot, and he was shot down, and he was in prison there for seven years and seven months. And he was in one of the worst places called the Hanoi Hilton, what, called by us the Hanoi Hilton. And so 
The American POWs were sometimes paraded about in propaganda films. In 1966, Jeremiah Denton was interviewed to make one of these propaganda films, and apparently they did so in the hope of demoralizing Americans back in the U.S. that would see these and would denounce a U.S. war. Well, during the interview, what stood out with him is he kept blinking his eyes as though the light was bothering him, but then it was determined he was sending out Morse code. And the, the viewers in Washington could tell, and he was spelling out the word torture because that is what was happening to him and the others despite what American and the world was being told. And so after that, his torture increased. It increased greatly, and he spent four years in solitary confinement. Four years. Now, lest you think it was the size of some big cell, two of those years were in a cell the size of a refrigerator. I can't imagine. I mean, how can someone endure that? Uh, and why is that so horrible? Why was that such a horrible form of punishment because solitary confinement because God made us relational because he's relational and he desires relationships with us we need his relationship he desires our relationship so God seeks he seeks those with whom to have a relationship how does he seek he seeks with general revelation nature around us the heavens declare the glory of God you look up and you see the stars or you you're in a class and you you look through a microscope at at this, uh, at this petri dish, and you see this world there. And what is that? That is, that is Romans 1. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that we are without excuse. So in general revelation, he, he is seeking in special revelation through the books of the Bible, and Bibles being handed out uh, 80-plus million uh, just not too long ago been handed out to people that when a missionary translates the Bible into a new language and people hear the gospel, that is God seeking. That is how he carries out his search through us as his ambassadors through the providences of life. And he seeks because we are valuable to him. We are not trash to be discarded. We are not insignificant specks in the creation. We are of value to him. And the Pharisees looked down on people and saw no value in them. It was easy to discard others. And Jesus is saying, no to God, everyone is valuable. And he not only searches, he searches successfully like the shepherd and like the woman. Now, God pleads through us. He searches through us. How are we doing? Our brother with the Gideons mentioned earlier about worldwide. The, the need is so great. Our lives are so short. Do you live with a sense of urgency? I live every day with a sense of urgency of how little time we have and how many people have yet to hear. Roughly 7 billion people on the planet. Everyone who studies this comes back to about the same figure. About 3 billion have never heard the gospel in any form. Now, most of those 3 billion are in dangerous places for missionaries to go. But we need to pray for God to raise up laborers. And yes, even from our own midst, our own children, our own grandchildren, some of us. And yes, some of us will die taking the gospel there. But when did it get easy? Christ said it was not going to be easy. Three billion. There's 6,500 different languages in the world. 6,500 different, approximately different languages. 4,000 have no Bible at all. 
probably don't have anything written in their languages. If I was young today, back considering a college major, I know what I would study. I would study linguistics, without a doubt. That is just an interesting, exciting thing. The thought of going to a people and helping develop their language and put it into print. God is seeking the lost, and he's seeking the lost in those people groups. I'm out of time, but let's be about the work of seeking. There's still a great deal to do. And then Christ, after he has preached to all the nations, then the end will come. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you are a seeking God. We are testimony to that. Some of us were like that older brother. Maybe we grew up very compliant. Some of us were like the younger brother. That we, uh, we raised Cain every way we could. And, uh, and thank you that you sought us and you brought us to yourself. And we pray that we would have the mind of Christ, especially in this, in this endeavor, toward our own families, own extended families, people with whom we work, neighbors, people in this community, people in other parts of the world that have yet to hear. And unless people are sent, they will not hear. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.